Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Sharon, who runs the Bed Post blog. Sharon started the blog to raise awareness of binge eating disorder and help end the shame, stigma and secrecy which surrounds binging and other eating disorder behaviours. Sharon joins us today to discuss her lived experience of binge eating disorder and reduce the stigmas that are associated with it. Hello Sharon. Hello Hannah. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Excited, a little bit nervous. Mm-hmm. But looking forward to our chat. Yeah, good. No, I'm really excited to speak to you. I think the nerves are a common theme when people get started um, with chatting, but then it kind of all flows nicely. So, um, yeah, hopefully those feelings will fade away for you. Um, so I guess I wanted to start today. Um, I think we have spoken a bit about binge eating disorder on the podcast before, um, but one of the reasons I'm really excited to speak to you is because I think it's not something that um, maybe people know a lot about or something that we've gone into sort of um, more detail in on the podcast. So if somebody is listening and they're not 100% sure what binge eating disorder is, how would you describe binge eating disorder? Um, Well, it's a pretty new diagnosis, um, which I think is one of the reasons why people don't hear so much about it. Um, It was brought in as a diagnosis in 2013 in the DSM-5. And um, I believe that to be diagnosed, you need to binge twice a week. Binging is described as eating an overly large amount and usually not having complete control over that eating. It's like a compulsion, if you understand what I mean. Okay. Um, So the criteria are two of those binges a week over several months and also no compensatory behaviour. So, I mean, if I was going to put it really, really simply, um, it's bulimia without the purging behaviours. That's pretty much what it is. Okay. Okay. And I guess, you know, um, thank you for kind of explaining what it is and how the diagnosis comes about. Something that I'm always really interested in is, does the diagnosis, like I guess the explanation, match up with how it feels for you? Is Would you say that that's kind of a good representation of how it feels for you? Or is there a lot more to it? Is it completely different in the moment for you? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's a very, very simplified explanation of what it is, isn't it? I mean, all eating disorders, as far as I understand it, they're a way of acting out how you're feeling or acting out something that is worrying you mm. so for me you know it's it was it's way more than that it's in part a way of life 
because I had been GT disorder for so long, um, my whole life was ruled by the pattern of eating that was binge eating disorder. Um, so the diagnosis doesn't men mention restriction, for example. I would restrict all day and then binge every evening, pretty much every evening. And that was my pattern of eating for decades. Wow. And then it doesn't address why, why people binge. And for me, that was all about not feeling. It was all about being terrified of emotions mm. of any type. I just felt completely overwhelmed by emotions, whether they were whether it was something like anger or being upset or being stressed, even being very happy, overly happy. It was all just too much. And what I was doing by my binging was physically pushing down those emotions. You know, you talk so much about emotions being, you know, related to your stomach, you know, that fear in the pit of your stomach, you know, a lump in your throat. That's what it felt like for me. I was eating the food and that food was piling on top of that those emotions that I just couldn't deal with and physically pushing them further and further down into my body mm. so that I could numb them forget they were there and not have to release them with all of that entailed it's interesting for me to sort of hear what you say because I think I, I had anorexia so my eating disorder was different but the way that I used food was the same in that it was using the food to numb the emotions you know I I had a conversation with my friend the other day actually we were talking about the same thing that and I guess this is actually the opposite to what you've just said now I'm thinking about it in my head but I either was able to be really really happy or really really sad or really really angry but actually sitting in the middle and being kind of at a level emotion was so so uncomfortable for me that that's when I used the behaviors was I couldn't cope with I guess feeling normal I had to I had to have that high or that low which is why the behaviors came in so it's interesting that I guess the the premise of the eating disorder is the same because it's it's a way to not feel those emotions yeah yeah that's exactly it. it's like two sides of the same coin isn't it mm. but it is all about not having to deal with that stuff not having to feel and it is about control isn't it you know, you said about controlling the feelings and it's very much about that. Um, I mean, that, that need, that need to keep a lid on things, that need to have everything at a place where you can manage is so important 
Um, and I think that that's, that's something that's not talked a lot about, um, especially in the media. And I think it's something that all eating disorders very much have in common. Yeah, definitely. I guess um, kind of following on from that, if the the behaviours were almost or were used to numb the emotions, would you say that, you know, did it work? Did it did it actually make things feel better? And kind of was there a, a duration that it lasted for or, you know, did it make things better? Um. For a little bit, <laughs> um, while I was binging, yes, yes, it did help. Um, you know, there was that feeling that I described of it just being pushed back down. Um, and afterwards, if you binge enough, it really hurts. It's painful, and so that pain in my stomach and the feeling of the stretched stomach was a fantastic distraction. But then after that, that's when the shame and the disgust and the self-hatred all kicked in. And then you've got strong emotions again and you're back on the wheel. So it was always a temporary solution. I was, I always felt one binge away from exploding. And I was always terrified of what would happen if that, if I did that, what would happen if I just let all of that emotion out. And I was stuck in that pattern for decades. Would you say it was almost a self-perpetuating thing in that? you I guess had an emotion you didn't want to feel so you binged and then once you sort of had stopped the binge you then started to feel the shame the I guess the negative emotions attached to it which then made you binge again so it's just kind of a spiral consistently going round. yeah it was it's um it was self-perpetuating but as I say um I suppose to put it into context, binge eating disorder became a diagnosis in 2013. I was binging for 30 years before it was officially a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So by the time I hit the point where it was recognised that I had a problem, I didn't even think about it that much. That was just how I lived my life. That was the pattern that was how I ate that was how I felt I'd by the time I was diagnosed I was at a point where I just presumed that that was pretty much how everybody lived and how everybody felt because I didn't know any different I'd been binging since I was a child so in retrospect looking back yeah, it was self-perpetuating. Mm. I was just making myself worse. Um, I was just making myself feel worse. But when I was there in the middle of it, that was my normality. 
before the I guess I think it's really interesting what you said about the fact that you know it's only been a diagnosis for what nine years Mm -hmm. before that what did people around you think did people know about the behaviors and kind of what was their kind of view of the behaviors I mean it might it might still be the same now even though there is the diagnosis I didn't tell anybody nobody around me knew literally nobody knew I kept it a secret I'd attempted to tell a few GPs over the years um they gave me a diet leaflet and sent me on my way um but I had I'd, I'd gone into GPs and I'd said look you know I've got I've got this issue with food I can't stop myself from eating this isn't normal just greed this is something more I know it's something more um but you know they they don't didn't have training they didn't know they took one look at me saw me as um you know an obese woman and just took it that no it's lack of willpower here go on a diet other than that I didn't really tell anybody um my my mother I told her the full extent of when it started the week before I set up my blog just in case she found out by accident I still haven't had a proper conversation with my father about how long I'd had it. Um, I started to tell people once I'd finally been diagnosed and referred to the eating disorder service. So that would have been about 2014. And at that point, yeah, the complete absence of understanding. Um, Everybody I told just, you know, they just took one look at me as, it's like you, I could see them looking me up and down. You know, how could you possibly have an eating disorder? Um, my dad just, again, he thought that I'd been put on a diet. He was like, what's this about, you know, eating six times a day? Because the treatment is very similar for any eating disorder. The three meals, three snacks. Um, and he just thought that it was some diet that I was on um I don't think he really quite understood the concept my mom made a comment about um yeah I remember when you were staying with me and you had those two mince pies and I just remember looking at her and saying no no (laughs) mom two mince pies isn't a binge it's way way more than that Um, I got into the habit after that of just saying I'm in recovery from an eating disorder because it just, the whole binge eating disorder, the way that people would look at me, it was quite difficult to deal with. Um, So, yeah, I would just say I'm in recovery from an eating disorder. (sighs) 
nobody was, you know, explicit. It was all in the looks. The, you know, yeah, well, I can see that. She's a bit fat, isn't she? You know, she just eats too much. Yeah, she just eats too many pies, doesn't know when to stop. No one was explicit about it, but I could see. I could see in the facial. I don't know whether I'm asking an obvious question, but I think it would be, I'd like to hear what you think. But why do you think that there is so much shame? I think society is the reason for why there's so much shame. Go back to the 17th century and being able to eat large amounts was a status symbol. In this day and age, everybody is encouraged to eat as little as possible. Everybody is encouraged to be as thin as possible. And we are bombarded by images and messages telling us that fat people have bought it on themselves, that overeating is the worst possible crime that you could commit against yourself. And I think that that is the reason why binge eating disorder and binging is looked upon in the way that it is. And that that needs to change. It desperately needs to change, not just for people with binge eating disorder, but for people with all eating disorders. Because I know that it's no better if you have another eating disorder, The, the way that... You know, I wish I was a bit anorexic. I mean, really? Mm. I wouldn't wish an eating disorder on my worst enemy. Mm. But it's all constantly seen through this diet culture, fat phobic lens. And as long as that is in place and nobody is going to see the whole truth about eating disorders and how awful they truly are for the people who've lived through them yeah yeah I think you're right I think ultimately um behaviors like restriction and being able to limit your diet or being able to exercise they are massively glorified in society and you know then on the opposite side of that you know if if you do consume large amounts of food or you do gain weight that's seen as such a negative so I can only imagine you know trying to to explain to somebody that doesn't understand an eating disorder I think you know when it's associated with behaviors like binging because of the society we live in it is just seen as you know well just have some self-control stop you know you should be able to stop yourself um but it's not a physical um illness it's a mental illness and I think that's the the thing that people can't 
kind of make that distinction between. Um, and I was I was thinking before we came onto this podcast um, about you know sort of the recovery process and I don't know I was again um like like you've just said I, I don't think that having any eating disorder is easy at all and I wouldn't wish any disorder on my worst enemy but I was thinking about how difficult recovery is um but you know in my personal experience when I was in recovery everybody was very supportive of me eating because the goal was to gain weight and and you know they could see that I was at a low weight so it was almost you know accepted that I had the support to be able to eat but it, it made me think when you just said about your your dad and the the meal plan that you were given just automatically assuming that that was a weight loss plan um rather than it being something to support you into regular eating to support you to move away from your eating disorder and I don't know I was thinking about recovery and how because we are so focused on weight loss if somebody's in a larger body that the recovery it it just felt like there wouldn't be as much encouragement for that regular eating when I was thinking about it yeah I think you're right um I mean for me I was diagnosed at my lowest weight um because my eating, my binge eating um, is around numbing feelings, there have been massive fluctuations in my weight over the years. Um, I've had a few episodes of depression. And when I'm depressed, I don't feel much. Um, you know, anybody who's been through depression, they talk about how you get really, really sad, but but that's not it. Depression numbs you. And so when I've had depression, I haven't needed to binge eat. The compulsion hasn't been there because I haven't been feeling anything. Um, I say laughing, but, you know, that that's a side effect of depression for me, um, that I do lose weight because I'm not binging. Um, and at the time I was diagnosed, um, I was having my worst episode of depression that I've ever had. And I was on antidepressants, um, which led to quite a drastic weight loss. So for me, as part of my recovery, that included coming off the antidepressants. And it has led to quite a substantial weight gain. And yeah, that's difficult because people have noticed, people have made comments (laughs) and people were paying me an awful lot of compliments when I was suicidal and on antidepressants. So it's, it's nuts. It's just crazy that me being healthy (laughs) means that society sees me as somebody who is unhealthy who lacks willpower and who's greedy whereas when I'm at my unhealthiest because I have severe depression that's when everybody's looking at me thinking well how wonderful you know you're looking so well you're looking so great what have you done 
Um, it does make things difficult. And um, I think it's one of the reasons why I decided to start the blog and start speaking out because it does, it does make recovery hard. And you're right, no recovery is easy, but when you've got that fat body and you're walking around and you, you know, you know how people are looking at you, um, you know what people think about you, you know, you lose that ability to go, just go into a shop and buy an outfit mm. because clothes manufacturers don't want you in their shops, you know. All of those things that come as part of recovering into a big, bigger body that people in smaller bodies wouldn't even think about, they make it tough. And still, on top of that, you have the stigma around the binging. <laughs> yeah, the stigma and the shame and everything that comes along with that. Did it make, um, I guess what you just said then about um, kind of the, the judgment from other people in, in clothes shops and, and things like that, did it make eating difficult? Because I, I assume that there would, I might be making a wrong assumption, but I would assume that there would be judgment there as well in, in eating. So developing that regular pattern of eating during recovery was that hard? I still struggle with it. I have to be honest, I still struggle every day to eat breakfast. I never managed the, the full three meals in pre-snacks day. I aim for three meals. Yeah, I do still struggle with, you know, body image issues. Um, but, you know, that's, that's just part and parcel of it, isn't it? Yeah, society's made it more difficult, but it would have been difficult anyway. Mm. Because that is a crucial part of recovery. I really, like, I hate the fact that you said that it's part and parcel. Because I don't... I don't think that we should just accept that fat phobia, the stigma attached, it shouldn't be part and parcel. Like, obviously it is, but it, it really shouldn't be. But I think the stigma associated with all eating disorders and the lack of understanding, I think, like you said before, makes it so difficult to sh to share what you're going through or how you're feeling because it's that that intense fear of what if they don't understand um and I don't know in, in my head I'm thinking do you have any thoughts of how we get rid or reduce that stigma I think the tide's turning I honestly do um the anti-diet movement is growing bigger day by day. Um, I mean, there's so many wonderful accounts out there now. I mean, Fat Doctor UK, the work that they are doing to dispel the myth, I think it's really making a difference. 
I think it will change. I think things will change. I'm hopeful things will change. I'm proud to be part of that body positivity, fat liberation, fat acceptance movement. Mm. I'm extremely proud to be part of that. And I'm very vocal about it. Yeah. Because the more people who speak out against it, the better the chance that things are going to change. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why I was so excited to speak with you today was because having these conversations, sharing your experience, increasing the awareness, if one person listens to this and thinks, oh, I have a similar experience and, and that's okay. And, you know, things, things can get better. Then I think that's, you know, that's what we're all rooting for. Um, and something that I kind of wanted to talk about, and you said just then, that um you, you still do do struggle I think often you know along with the the shame and and the anxiety I think sometimes you know people might go for a period of time without binging and then a difficult situation arises and they might binge how do you sort of stop yourself from getting back into that self-perpetuating cycle and actually you know give compassion to yourself to to prevent the binging continuing I think the one thing I've learned and I have had many relapses uh, the recovery process for me um, I've been on this journey now for seven or so years so yeah there's been a lot of relapse I mean one of the big things is learning those early warning signs so stopping it before it even starts For me, one of the early warning signs is that breakfast. Hmm. If I'm delaying my first meal of the day, crazy as it sounds, I mean, I've got binge eating disorder. I'm in recovery from binge eating disorder. But my warning sign, the one where I know things are going downhill is I'm restricting. I'm eating later and later during the day. If my first meal starts to be at midday, then I know that I need to take a step back and have a look and figure out what's wrong. What's not quite in sync, what's not in balance, is there something that's going on for me? Mm. And is that something that I can do something about? Um, my other warning sign is the way that I see my body. If I'm having a tough time, my default is to take it out on my body. So if I'm looking in the mirror in the morning and I'm disgusted by what I see, I hate it rather than my usual, thankfully my usual default now that I'm in recovery of oh, that's my body, what do I want to wear today? <laughs> um, then those are my two warning signs. And if I catch myself there, I can usually prevent binge by doing something else, either 
tackling what's causing it or self-soothing in another way. Mm. If I get to the point where I do binge, and that has that, you know, it has happened. Again, it's that taking a step back. And going through in my head, okay, why? Just looking at the causes, being compassionate with myself. And I say being compassionate with myself and I'm rolling my eyes because it's, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm very much, you know, I'm, I'm a middle-aged woman from the West Midlands, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, being kind, being kind to myself and looking at it in an analytical sort of way rather than beating myself up or being horrible to myself because of what I've done. If I've done it, there's a reason. What's the reason? What can I learn from it? And the more I learn, the better my chances of stopping it happening next time. Yeah. I think that's such a such an insightful kind of thing to say. And I loved when you laughed about kind of compassion to yourself because I don't know I, you always hear it I don't know on social media and everyone's like oh you know like be kind to yourself and all of that when in the moment the last thing you want to do is be kind to yourself because you know that's the reason you're engaged in you're potentially want to engage in the behavior so it's such a difficult thing um but it sounds so simple um but I I couldn't agree more about you know if you do have a moment where you know, you may even engage in the behaviour and afterwards be kicking yourself thinking, oh, why did I do that? You know, I've slipped up or whatever. Um, I don't know, my perspective sometimes is that sometimes you might engage in the behaviour and it's almost, this is my personal experience anyway, it's, it's the bounce back afterwards. And that to me, that bounce back has become easier as time has gone on. And like you said, you, I think you learn more as you go on about yourself. Um, and I, I was saying to a friend the other day, you know, I think people that have a difficult relationship with food throughout recovery, then probably have a more insightful, maybe not better, but more insightful relationship with food than people that have never experienced an eating disorder because they've had to spend so long sort of thinking about it and and thinking about their relationship with food so I think like you said just kind of understanding why you've done certain things can be really beneficial um I guess do you have things that you might do instead that are that are more positive or do you just sort of sit and think you know why has that come up for me and how how can I take this forward um, I find analysing why I've done it really important for me um, because then I can, it's like, um, well, one, it's the bounce back with you. It helps me personally with the bounce back, but also it's sort of turning the situation on its head. It's an opportunity for me to learn something 
as opposed to something awful that I've done. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like my way of trying to turn it round and stop beating myself up. Okay, yeah, I've done this, but that means that I can really learn something and that will help my recovery going forward. But, you know, other things, again, it, it is about being kind to myself. Rubbing my tummy, I find really helpful. You know, on a physical level, a hot water bottle can sometimes help. Very small sips of a warm drink, depending on how much I've binged. Mm. Um, because if your stomach is very swollen, then, then that in itself, putting anything else into it can be more painful. I'm quite a tactile person, so things like, you know, snuggling up under a really soft blanket or hugging a pillow or something like that can be helpful. Deliberately doing an act of self-care, <laughs> um, <laughs> like painting my nails, you know, as a distraction, um, warm shower, warm bath. So those are all ways that I will try to soothe myself physically. And sometimes it can take, you know, it can take a, a few hours, a few days before I can look back on that binge, especially earlier on in my recovery. But I would always try to do that because there's so much you can learn from it. And it really does make a difference. It might not make a difference on that day when you're looking back on it and at, at the beginning it's desperately uncomfortable to to have to think about it um but now that I'm seven years down the line I know how much doing that has helped me yeah I think that's really nice how you said that there that initially it might not be that you can kind of think about it immediately and process it immediately and it might be that you have to do a few acts of self-care before things even start to feel a little bit calmer let alone being able to process it and I think you're right in that recovery does take time um and sometimes I think it annoyingly has to get a bit harder before it can get better um because you are literally you know going at it head on um like I think often kind of going along with it and engaging in the behaviors is difficult but because you're going along with it you're sort of not fighting against it you're fighting alongside it whereas fighting heads on against it is going to be more difficult but like you said I think it does get easier because you learn different ways of doing it as you go along. I think you're right. And a lot of it is very much trial and error. You know, you, you have to learn yourself what works for you. Yes, you can have guidance from outsiders, from psychologists and therapists. But ultimately, it's all down to you, isn't it? And you figuring out what works for you and what makes you feel comfortable in your recovery and what makes it easier and we're all different people you know we all believe different things we all feel different things we all learn things different ways and it is about 
finding that balance between what you've got to do to recover and what is comfortable and manageable mm. for you. Yeah. So when you, um, I think you said that you, you got your diagnosis, what was the process for that? If someone's listening, thinking, I do want to get support for this, but I don't know where to go, what, what did you do? It always starts with the GP. Everything in the UK starts with the GP, doesn't it? So um, the first step is to book that appointment, preferably a double appointment. <laughs> um, and go and have an honest and open conversation with a GP that you trust within your local practice. Not the locum, <laughs> one that you trust. Um, Beat produced um, a lovely guide last year as part of EDOR um, when binge eating disorder was the featured eating disorder, um, which is really helpful. It's helpful for GPs, but it's also helpful um, somebody going in and having that first conversation. Um, so you might want to take that along if you can get a face-to-face -face appointment. Might be helpful to take somebody with you as well because it can be a difficult conversation. So that would be how I would advise somebody to go and get the help. Now, I was extremely lucky um, because... The GP I approached had clearly just had a little bit of training <laughs> and um, or um, some information from the local eating disorder service because um, they were just about to start some group therapy specifically for binge eating disorder. Wow. So I didn't have a very long wait. Um, this GP referred me straight away and I was in having an initial assessment within a couple of weeks because there was this course you know this course that they were trying to find people for starting in a few weeks time so I went in I did the wonderful 20 page questionnaire about feelings about food we've all had them yeah um they're the same questionnaire for their eating disorder. Um, had the initial assessments. It was very clear I had eating disorder. Would I like to go on the um, group course? Definitely. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, a few weeks later, I was there with these other people who had been eating disorder knew what it was like hmm. they got it and that was just so wonderful it wasn't just me all these people felt the same way were having the same struggles and 
we got to share our stories, advise each other, support each other, and learn some techniques from the people who were running the course. Um, then a few months later, I went to that uh, second course. So um, it was a lot of the same people. We went on to a second, I think it was uh, two 10-week courses that we did. And between the two courses, we were assessed. After the second course, I was going through a particularly bad time and I was still struggling um, with binging. I was struggling quite badly, probably more than before. Mm. I, think I'd, um, I think I'd reduced my dose of antidepressants at that point as well, which wouldn't have helped. Um, so I was offered one-to-one -one therapy. And I had that one-to-one -one therapy for nearly a year. So I count myself extremely lucky. Um, I had a wonderful psychologist who got me, um, who used techniques that were really helpful for me. Um, and then I finished it off with a mindfulness course before I was finally discharged. So there are lots of options, lots of treatment options. I mean, I pretty much had the lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, by that point, I'd had binge eating disorder or an eating disorder um, because my behaviours did change over the years um, for a very long time. So, you know, if you've been in that cycle for decades, it takes a little bit longer to get out of that cycle. So the, there are those options that are available if you ask for the help. And even if your local eating disorder service doesn't cater for binge eating disorder, there are charities that can support as well. Yeah. The help's there. Yeah. Um, I think First Steps do a binge eating disorder workshop uh, or like group um program it sounds similar to what you kind of mentioned there um and I just imagine that sort of connection with people that get you for something that's so isolating and so lonely I can imagine just hearing somebody else talk about what you've been through would be incredible to you know feel like you're not alone anymore in what you're going through. Well, that's it. I'd gone from decades of having this secret, nobody even knowing, mm. not realising that there were millions, I mean, literally millions of other people in the world suffering with the same issue, mm. to sitting in a room with other people who knew exactly what it felt like. It was amazing. Yeah. But yeah, First Steps, um, they have course. Um, Wednesday's Child, I believe, they have peer support workers. Okay. Um, and Beat has support over the phone. 
mm -hmm. support workers, and they also have a specific chat room okay. for binge eating disorder. So um, BEAT is another first step if the GP is not listening, yeah. give them a ring and um, they'll be able to advise on what to do mm. and also advise on what support is out there through different routes. Yeah, I think as difficult and as hard as it is, I think the one thing that I've gathered from speaking to people is being persistent is key. And that can be so difficult, especially if you're maybe thinking that you're not worthy of support or you might not think that you can get any help um, to be turned away can be difficult. But I think, you know, if, if you know that you're struggling with food or your body, just being persistent in getting the support. Um, because like like Sharon said it is it is out there it's just unfortunately sometimes you do just have to keep going back and saying this is actually really really impacting me um, so thank you so much Sharon for your honesty I think this episode is going to help people so much um, I, I think you know you have really been so honest and spoken about things that I can imagine are difficult to speak about so just really wanted to say thank you um for having me no no it's been a pleasure um I've got a question from the listeners so yeah I'm gonna ask you that if that's okay what you've been wanting to ask so somebody has asked how can I speak to my friends and family when I don't look like I have an eating disorder Well, first off, eating disorders don't have a look. <laughs> it is that simple. Um, maybe that's a way to start the conversation. 25% of people who have eating disorders male. <laughs> you know, are they, anybody can have an eating disorder. It's a mental illness. Mm. It's got nothing to do with what you look like. It's a mental illness and it's about how you deal with stuff to bring it to its absolute basics. Um, if you're worried about how people judge you, then maybe, maybe start talking about how you feel. That's, that's what I did when I started opening up to the people around me. Um, I sort of put food to one side because of all the stigma and because of people's beliefs around it. And I started to talk more about how I feel. You know, I, sometimes I eat too much when I'm feeling this way or I'm struggling with these feelings and build up to it that way, I found that a little bit easier. So maybe that will help. Yeah, and that's a really good point because I think people may be a lot less um, likely to invalidate how you're feeling if, like you say, you talk about it from a feeling perspective rather than food. I think sometimes people may be I guess from my personal experience, one thing I found is apparently when it comes to food, everybody knows what the answer is. So oh, yeah. 
if you start talking about it with food you're just going to get everybody's opinion on how to help you um but talking about it maybe from more of a how you're feeling or an emotional side people probably will still you know say to you oh have you tried this um but maybe it's less likely to be as as intense as when people think that they know how to get you to eat quote unquote normally yeah um like this this food is so emotive and you know yeah people have ideas I mean I, I developed chronic pain a few years back and the amount of advice that I got about that you know I, I thought the eating disorder advice was out there but oh my word when you add chronic pain into the mix the amount of things that have been suggested to me over the years but everybody knows how overwhelmed feels everybody knows how stress feels everybody knows how sadness feels mm. and they can relate to that in a way that they or at least this is what I've found I found that people can relate to that much more easily than the food side mm. And when what it's actually about anyway, or has been for me, has been the feelings, then I'm sort of, I felt like I was bypassing the sort of the screen that's in the way, the barrier Mm. to getting that support and having that openness. It's like the food became a barrier and removing that out, putting that to one side and talking about what was causing the symptoms to do with the food mm. um, really helped me. It helped me to have open and honest conversations and it, it helps the people in my life to support me better mm. because they weren't thinking about the food. They were thinking about, okay, what does Sharon need? Yeah. What's she feeling? What does she need? Yeah. And I just still don't think that the awareness that, um, you know, how we both said at the start, you know, the eating disorder developed as a way to, I don't know, soothe, numb, whatever word you want to use the emotions. I don't think that that's really known. So I think, you know, definitely starting with this is an emotive thing, like you've said, um, I think would really help somebody to understand. I think as well, just being... um, I don't know what the word would be, maybe gentle when you're explaining to people. Almost whilst they have a responsibility to, you know, as your loved ones to be there for you. I think one thing I, if I could change when I go back, is just thinking that they should know how to fix me. Because I think ultimately it's not the role of your friends and family to fix you, to know how to fix you. You know, my dad didn't really know what an eating disorder was. So maybe not making an assumption as well that the people that are caring for you will have all the answers and will know what you're talking about, but kind of learning together, kind of coming on board together and going through it together, I think is maybe a a nicer way to do it rather than, oh my God, I can't believe you don't understand. Well, how are we meant to understand? And, and then it just kind of gets messy. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that- that surprised me that's because that's so different from my experience I I never expected anybody to fix me Hmm. 
um, it, that, it never even occurred to me um, that anybody would want to. That's how I suppose that that's an indicator of how worthless I felt. Mm. Um, it never occurred to me that anybody would want to fix me or that they would be able to. Mm. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why I kept it secret. But you're right. I mean, I don't know what it is about dads, but they just don't get it. They just want to protect you, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> they don't know how. And, they, and then they just get angry because <laughs> you're suffering. Um, but, yeah. And, and then there are the people who want to fix you um, but have no idea how to fix you and then throw that stuff into the mix. <laughs> that is completely unhelpful. But, yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, different experiences. Like I say, we're all unique, aren't we? We're all exactly. coming from different directions. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important to kind of hold on to is that everybody will require a different approach as well um so if you're somebody that's listening and you know you're thinking oh I think that my loved one maybe is struggling with binge disorder I want to help obviously Sharon's suggestions have been amazing but there might not be the right suggestion for your loved one and I think it is just that trial and error and there'll probably be tears and tantrums and arguments and as horrific as they are they're all unfortunately part of that healing process um very much so yeah yeah well Sharon thank you so much it's been incredible to speak to you um so thank you so much for sharing your experience you're very welcome I've had a great time if you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.